This is Speaking Well. I'm your host, Greg Dickinson. This is the podcast about communication and everyday life. In each episode, we will talk with a communication expert and scholar and explore how communication research can provide resources for navigating complex interactions. We'll talk about relationships in politics, social media and film, public speaking, and private talk. In this podcast, we will offer straightforward but often challenging explorations about communication centrality to our lives. On today's episode of Speaking Well, I talked to Dr. Eric Aoki. Eric is a professor of communication studies at Colorado State University. His research intersects the areas of identity, voice, and cultural representations in media and public spaces. His publications include Mexican-American Ethnicity in Biola, California, an ethnographic account of hard work, family, and religion in the Howard Journal of Communications, and Spaces of Remembering and Forgetting, the Reverend I, I at the Plains Indian Museum. Eric's teaching is grounded in two guiding principles. First, conversations are the most meaningful events in our lives, which Eric learned from his mentor, Dr. John Stewart at the University of Washington. And second, it is imperative that we keep the cult cultural conversation going. Eric's advocacy includes work with the Colorado State University Student Diversity Offices and other diversity-based causes. Eric, it's great to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do here at Colorado State University? Yeah, Greg, thanks for having me as well. And certainly, you know, with great joy, I'm a professor of interpersonal and U.S. co-cultural and intercultural international communication in the Department of Comm Studies. Those are the kind of undergraduate courses I teach. I also teach graduate courses in communication theory, academic writing, and global identities in communication. And for me, it's been this uh, wonderful journey of growth in the department for about 24 years now. And so all being said, I've also served as a faculty connection or connector for many diversity, inclusivity, first generation, the various cultural centers and resource centers across the university for many years now. And so I've been absolutely honored to have had this long-term connection with both the Comm Studies Department, originally when I got here, Speech Communication Department, and CSU now for so many years. Eric, you've named well all the things that you do, well, in, in short version, all the things you do here at the university and in the department, that connection between teaching in the classroom, the mentoring you do with the students outside of the classroom, and then your connection to the diversity and inclusivity offices and, and just this, this deep connection you have across university and in Fort Collins and, and the state. So thank you for that. I want to talk some today about your research in community and communication and, and how those things go together. It seems like to me such pressing questions about how we communicate in our communities and across our communities and the ways in which communication is powerfully useful and can also be really harmful. So your research uh, over the years has really varied. We would expect that, wouldn't we? You've been doing scholarly work for more than 30 years now, but you return again and again to community and conversation and difference. And your work in Biola, California, I mentioned that early essay of yours that was published in Howard Journal of Communications, really is central to these concerns of community conversation and difference. What have you learned about the role of communication in creating or sometimes hindering or undermining a sense of community? Yeah, thank you for that question. I, I you know, want to go back to such the, that strong gesture back to my mentor at the University of Washington, John Stewart, who had mentioned to me at some point that conversations are the most significant events of our lives. And I think if you take that at sort of surface level, it makes some sense but it had a profound effect on me and how I see communication and relating and the agency that we have to 
build bridges and work towards understanding of belonging and collaborating together through such differences. And also, you know, mitigating conflict as well, too, uh, as we like to say in both interpersonal and intercultural communication and other areas of relating and organizing, conflict is inevitable. So it is a fact that it's going to occur. And so how do we become better at working through and negotiating and mitigating that conflict as well, too? So as I think about the role of communication and its sense of uh, community building, I always kind of am holding on to that foundation that was a gift from Dr. Stewart uh, many, many years ago. And I know you'll relate to this too, in terms of like sort of that Aristotelian notion of the greater good and the ways in which that greater good could serve notions of belonging and being and becoming citizen, if you will, to community. And, uh, but also recognizing all the work that it takes to belong. And I think that's something that I have good conversations with my students about in class is at the sort of, uh, at that sort of like, uh, surface level, again, folks oftentimes say, I just want a smooth ride with communication, right? And I'm pretty much a realist with that. And I, I have a realist position in terms of saying that working through community conversation and difference is a lot of work. It takes effort. It takes work. It takes what we oftentimes call interpersonal or intercultural communication competency skill building, meaning becoming more effective and more appropriate across cultural contexts with a diverse range of audiences, but becoming more effective and appropriate in those cultural contexts that we were not socialized into, that we didn't comfortably slip into and or were born into. And so that's that work that has to be done. And I say that about interpersonal relating as well, too, is that uh, the most meaningful and impactful and deep relationships that you build over time, long term, have definitely taken some work to sustain. And so that's where that's coming from. And I think maybe the last thing I'll add in here just uh, to see what other response you might have is that sometimes difference is viewed as that deficit or is viewed as a negative. And I've really worked hard through my career to try to figure out how best to frame difference as, yes, taking work, but also being something that's humanistically beautiful and something that we can learn through. And difference is something that offers us new ways of being. It also is a way to sort of think about uh, as we build community with each other and that sense of community, it's through that difference that we can build those intercultural communication or interpersonal communication competency skill sets over time. And I think that there's just such a like wonderful complexity there with regard to sort of thinking about building through the difference, knowing that you also, of course, have to have a foundation of similarity that gets built as well too. So with those things, I think those are oftentimes things that I think about that are influential in that role of, that when you ask the role of communication in creating a sense of community. But uh, I can talk about those things that I'm learning even in Biola, the community of Biola, that even something like a technological imperative infusion over the years, how that's posed newfound both strengths and newfound ways of communicating community, but also some challenges and some vulnerabilities to family systems when in fact you can be not only here locally, but out there as well uh, more broadly. And the way that that may be posing some kind of concern for some of the parents, for example, when their children no longer feel as local as they used to feel uh, in their eyes and their perspective. 
So I'll stop there, but uh, that's uh, kind of a first round of way of, of responding to your your interesting question there. You know, Eric, uh, I, I do want to pursue where the, those last couple of sentences. That That's going to be the next place I want to go. I'm, I'm thinking about this the thing that you've offered us, which is that to think well together is going to take some work. And often we think of that work as kind of negative. Oh my, you know, as you said, students or, or others saying, I just want this communication to go to go simply. But I also know, and this is a conversation that you and I have been having for uh, you know years and years, that there's a real joy and pleasure in confronting people who are different than myself and, and really trying to figure out how do I learn how do I learn from them how do I take some of that into into who I am the hunger some of us have for for really expanding our ourselves do you have a response to that and the, and then let's get after biola's and its changes yeah you know you've got me thinking about that sort of really interesting and challenging conversation that we have in the classroom sometimes people think or hold a perception that Difference means that I have to give up what I am, my values, my preferences in order to accommodate and or make something more diverse and different work, right? You know, sometimes that's uh, some of the, the fear that, that some of my students voice and so forth. And, you know, I, I've always believed that we're entitled to our preferences. And yet at the same time, from a communication perspective, our preferences uh, don't always necessarily uh, translate into what's effective and appropriate back to that intercultural communication competency in a variety of contexts to make diverse collaborations work. And so thinking through that and thinking through the notion of what intercultural scholars call embodied ethnocentrism, if you will, a lot of people know what ethnocentric means to be kind of view your culture as the center of the world and kind of the priority to lead with, right? But an embodied ethnocentric ethnocentrism is that positionality of all of us have this sense of being comfortable and liking familiarity in the ways that we navigate our day-to-day and our everyday ways of being in the world. That's not uh, something to like uh, be too concerned about that we that we enjoy comfort and familiarity. But the problem with that becomes when that tone gets so strong that you begin to only see your comfort and your familiarity as the only way of being and moving through and prioritizing and navigating in the larger globe and the larger relationships with uh, a lot of folks who prioritize things quite differently. And so I really like that notion of thinking through like what that tension feels like to sort of both honor the way that you are and who you are and the way you have learned to be in the world in the cultural context that you spend most of your time in, and yet being also humbled, if you will, having a sense of humility, cultural humility of the fact that that's one way of being in this larger world. And so even in class yesterday, we were talking about understanding even cultural logics as to why people might behave the way that they do because they have a different sense of values and our priorities. And sometimes our conversations aren't that it's either this or that. It, sometimes it's simply we have a lot of the same things on our list that we value, but we might prioritize them and perform them quite differently. And so, you know, that's one way to sort of think about like that larger diverse conversation and uh, some of the things that we need to think about as we think through what it means to build a sense of community with each other. In terms of Biola more specifically, you know, I've had the good opportunity to be, as you've said there, many, many years now uh, over the course of time, 
course, working differently now, research on hold uh, through the pandemic in, in terms of being able to do field work and survey work on the ground. But at the same time, I mentioned earlier the newfound use of technology. When I started there in 1997, back when I was at the University of Washington, technology was not, the medium of technology was not a way to disseminate information about community and or community happenings or identity. And it has become more of a mainstay with Facebook presence and of course, Chamber of Commerce presence on social media. And now we have this new way, Bioloans have this new way of performing identity and community in a vastly different way than uh, without that technology. Over the years, I've uh, been able to see sort of the influx of different cultural groups before I was even there, but I grew up around there in the 19, late 1960s. But uh, back in you know those earlier days, uh, for me, it was a predominantly German, German-American community that took a shift over the course of the time in 70s and 80s into a predominantly uh, Mexican-American community with still a lot of the German, German-American communities and others as well living in the same community at that time. But being able to see demographic shifts with, uh, for example, individuals from some subcontinental India, uh, Southeast Asia, a few more Black American community members as well too, Oaxacan community as well start to grow in, in California as well as in uh, that local regional area as well too. So seeing those demographic shifts has been really interesting to see over the, the course of time. And I think in terms of one thing that I can share that's been you know really interesting to follow in the discourses when I've done interviews with folks, the we position of a pronoun to hearing much more of an I position over the course of time. And I'm trying to figure out like why something as simple as a pronoun shift begins to matter in the way that we see ourselves in the community, right? To how individuals see themselves in the community through that I or we positioning, but also discourses that used to be predominantly about this quiet town. And there's so much to learn about what the word quiet means. I could go into that uh, in a whole uh, another area, but, uh, but also talking about new discourses from economic imperatives and changes over the course of time to individuals mentioning the phrase bedroom community, meaning it being more of a community in which we're seeing more people live here for reasons of economic uh, viability and livability, still participating in some of the elements of, uh, of the larger community, but basically going outside of town to do much of the work and coming back, in, as the phrase suggests, to basically close up the day and get a good night's sleep and then go back outside of the community again to work. So those are some of the changes I've been able to see kind of demographically, economically, and socially over the course of my time there. I'm intrigued with that shift from I to we, from we to I, I'm sorry, um, that, that you've observed. But also, as, as you've been talking about this, that there's a change in a whole bunch of changes. You talked about the change in technology and, and how that has shifted. And, and when you first talked about that, you talked about family. So younger people may be more engaged in the technology and older people perhaps less engaged. Um, these kind of stereotypically. All of these things seem like make, make a change in the ways in which think about community is this i we shift is is it a generational shift eric is it a uh, economic shift is it uh as as uh, 
greater diversity of folks move into the area. How are you interpreting that? I think it's the intersection of all those things that you mentioned, and that's what I'm trying to parse out a bit more. Definitely, there's some economic imperative impacts there when you begin to say that I'm spending more of my time of concern of holding family together, and hence I'm feeling the pressure, I'm feeling a need to take care of family and family uh, over the sense of a broader sense of community building, right? And it, again, it's not to be either or here, but kind of a different valence of emphasis. When I was back in Biola in the early 90s, I was just overwhelmed with how much we and community were used so often without me, you know, prompting that uh, much at all, you know? And I definitely walked in, you know, a decade later and started to say like, where did that go? Where did that discourse go? And so I do think it's an intersecting uh, influence from things like economics. I think that you begin to, I don't know that it's just strictly younger, older generational phenomenon, because that's really hard position in that way, because everyone in the community at, at large is familiar, is more and more familiar, right? Uh, with at least seeing and or having more access to some of these other mediums of communication as well, too. Uh, it's not uncommon, for example, to see uh, more people walking around with uh, smartphones, for example, right? Uh, that kind of phenomenon. Uh, I had to smile because it, back in the early days, I was the one with kind of camera and technology to take a few at distance shots of public life there, you know? And now, many years later, with new demographics of folks who don't recognize me, and I don't know in the community, they're curious what I'm doing there. And so people are turning their cameras on me, right? Uh, as a researcher, as someone uh, who doesn't seem like he fits here necessarily from their, from their perspective. So a little bit of that going on. I think that we see that, you know, generally speaking, too, when we talk about like, the tension that happens between what we look at interculturally, between that dialectical tension of individualism and collectivism, um, certainly then we might begin to see some fluctuation on that spectrum or that continuum, if you will, uh, from maybe that we collective to the I individual. As I've been back there more recently, I'm seeing a version of time where that fluctuation on that continuum is in fact, leaning a little bit more to hearing more often than I used to, the I discourse uh, that, uh, that is present when I both do interviews and have even informal conversations with, with folks as well, too. But you can imagine, if you think about the individualism and collectivism, that that would then begin to raise some interesting questions about how do we see ourselves collectively as community members and citizens here, right? That kind of set, uh, set of questions that begins to... Uh, get stimulated. Right. So we, we seems more community oriented. I seems more individual. But what I hear you saying is there's a negotiation going on about how, how an I might fit into a larger collective, but how this I is also perhaps connected to a family unit leaving town and coming back um, for, for the evening um, uh, for financial reasons, perhaps, or opportunity reasons. I want to um, shift the conversation just a little bit. You've talked a lot about the kind of challenges and opportunities for building community in Biola and, and and, you know, you have this kind of real pragmatic but but somewhat optimistic kind of a vision of communication um, helping us come together. But you spend time thinking about really difficult um, moments when communication pulls us apart. You've talked about 
peace and reconciliation in the face of really deep challenges in, in Africa in particular, but you've also mo most recently been working on the ways in which swastikas and nooses on campus communicated practices of terror that on the one hand might serve to pull a very specific group together. We were identified around a very particular identity, but whose purpose is to really um, terrorize others and, and to pull community apart. I, I'm wondering if you can think about the links between Biolans trying to figure out how they get along and this work that you're doing on, on um, terror and, and communicative practices of terror. Yeah, it's a really both complex and complicated kind of set of elements to look at. I think with the researching and looking into the nooses and swastikas in particular, there are a lot of other things that could be looked at too. I want to be clear to say that. Uh, but in particular, looking at the nooses and swastikas, which have been uh, started out with a, a lot of uh, news feeds that we started paying, that my uh, colleague and our, our colleague and I, uh, Carolyn Aronis and I, started to look at more specifically uh, as what, what we started to see in U.S. news coverage and so forth. And in particular on university college campuses, I think that we can begin to sort of see some similarities of how does community get built and or valued and culturally placed in this particular in these particular places, whether it be a small town or a university setting. And I think in particular with what uh, we we are currently calling like these violent technologies that have uh, of noose and swastika that have a materiality to them, if you will. And I know you understand that in terms of like, these are objects that are placed in public spaces that have the ability to not only disrupt and impose sort of disrupt the ecology of the university, maybe is one way to look at that, but also impose a sense of terror and or threats to security for those who are avowed members to the community, a diverse community at that, right? And I think one of the things that started to think through a little bit more is that, of course, there's a social construction and a symbols and their meanings approach to understanding uh, nooses and swastikas. But there's something else to look beyond when something is materially placed in a particular space, place, location that does something. And typically it's it's placed there by a perpetrator who's, who's working to, uh, in fact, put something without being known right in this community and the degree to which that particular object of materiality holds a history of violence the terror the trauma the memory that comes along with those objects and what they can do to the safety and security of individuals within a evolving and living community like a learning environment, like the university environment. They're very different things to attend to at the very sort of naming of them for both Biola and the university. But there still is there a inquiry into what in fact disrupts and or poses threats to that same sense of belonging to some of the values that get uh, performed in the community and what poses either threat or hindrance to that ability to build that sense of community cooperatively and effectively, perhaps. So I think that's one way that I've tried to understand like how the works, those two very seemingly different kinds of works uh, hold similar sense of questions or inquiry at the foundations about uh, how we are 
trying to define community, uh, even in this day and age. The word community itself is, and, and the notion of community itself is fascinating to begin to look at over the course of time. It feels different to me to say the word community in 2021 uh, as compared to when, when I used to say it quite often because of the work that I do in 1990, late 1990s, right? That there's similar threads, there's similar constructs and definitions that are in play. And yet the notions of community, even using the technology aspect, uh, communities online, for example, has expanded and reshaped the ways that we think about community in, in very complex ways too. This conversation has, has taken this really lovely, uh, hard, but lovely turn from when we first think about conversation, when most of us hear that, we think of the words that we share with each other. Here we are, as we as we near the end of this, understanding that the conversations we have are they're in places, even if they're technologically mediated. And those places and the kind of um, material stuff we bring with us really matters as well. The sense of safety or belonging is is not is symbolic for sure, but but also a sense that this is a place, whatever place that is, the university, the town, Biola, um, that the place itself actually kind of matters. Can you reflect for just a second longer, Eric, because you've really spent a lot of time thinking deeply about the emplacedness of, of community. Could you just spend a second longer reflecting on that with us? I think that even when you talk about the material resources that are available, advocated for, and how you begin to see how they impact the growth and or direction of a geographical community uh, in that way, you start to see how something material can in fact, maybe not redesign, but stimulate differently, motivate differently the directionality in which a community continues to evolve and grow, right? And so um, uh, a very practical example of that is watching the community of Biola move from talking about the need for sidewalks to having individuals within the community do the advocating for resources and funding so that children, for example, who are of high value, always talked about with such uh, high esteem, high value, high importance, wouldn't have to walk to school in the mud, could get to a school more safely uh, without uh, having to uh, walk along the dirt and the edge of the street, right? So some pragmatics there that are in place resource and how that emplacement of that material construct manifests itself into a different way of being, performing, and feeling within that sense of larger community. And that's just one example, right, of, of something like that that can motivate uh, and, and sort of stir that different directionality and evolving uh, notion of what it means to continue to grow into community, continue to evolve and grow into community over the course of time. The sidewalk is a, is a wonderful example, Eric. It, uh, obviously, it's concrete. It's it's made out of something. It took it took material to, to make it happen. It also uh, allows for a certain kind of way of of walking and interacting and, and connecting. As you talked about that, I I also thought about in the last um, year, a little over a year now that at least here in Fort Collins we've mostly been shut down. The the ways in which we don't have as many of those accidental interactions that happen in in 
uh, sidewalks and, and hallways and the ways in which that might be impacting our community. That leads me to my final question for you, Eric, which has to do with what are a couple of things that might be takeaways for our audience as they think about how might they be better able to help build community across difference um, within difference across difference? What, what, what are some modes of communication that you think are particularly helpful for building a stronger sense of community? Yeah, as I think about that question, it gets me to think about the reminders and the importance of, and this is my training too, as an ethnographer of communication, someone who's interested in studying people, culture, and, and performances uh, within, you know, context. But I'm reminded of the importance of uh, observing, listening, assessing for discourses and patterns or reoccurring discourses to learn more about the ways in which uh, everyday people perform and talk about their lives and livelihood within particular contexts. We oftentimes talk about cultural specific contexts, meaning emic, we call that E-M-I-C, emic uh, ways of looking. So very culturally specific ways of behaving and performing in particular cultural contexts that start to pattern out. I think sometimes doing a little bit more of that describing, interpreting, and then evaluating is the way that we oftentimes look at it, you know, like do more description of what you're observing and listening to before you start to make judgments about what you think that practice is about. I think that's a great sort of just reminder for the times that we're living in because there seems to be quite a, a lot of defaulting towards heavy judgment and evaluation before even describing the patterns of communication and and culture that people are uh, making assessments about or judgments about, right? I think leaving room for evolving dynamics, if I might say it that way, in terms of how communication channels open up and uh, invite performances of community. I think we've covered that a little bit, but uh, leaving some room for things like the ways in which technology gets diffused uh, within a community and how it works and what are some of the challenges, but what are some of the benefits of that technology as well? How does it also bring about uh, importance for uh, change agents within the community in a variety of different ways in, in different mediums of communication? And then maybe the last takeaway I'll share is I've really learned a lot about trying to not get so essentially grounded in the binary that something is, is either this or that. And I understand that given time and circumstances, we meet, need to make yes, no decisions at times or be able to see things as either or, or this or that for contrast, but also being able to sort of look through what our colleagues, Judith Martin and Thomas Nakayama talk about quite a bit interculturally as these dialectical tensions so that I might look at, for example, is something being stimulated through individual or cultural need, right? On either end of that tension, dialectical tension. How do I understand this phenomena through both similarity and difference as a tension? Uh, how does a community evolve through static, meaning uh, things that stay stable, traditional, and things that are being called for in need that are dynamic? So that evolving sense of community as well, too, in tension with each other. And then, of course, uh, it opens up uh, conversations about uh, 
some of the harder things that we talk about in terms of power dynamics and the privileges and disadvantages uh, that are on tension there when we think about the sense of building community over the course of time. And so just a, a last reminder there about thinking about those dialectical tensions and what we might learn through them um, rather than simply seeing that evaluative judgment of it's this or that, I think becomes really important uh, from that intercultural perspective. Thanks so much, Eric. Um, as you were talking, I was reflecting not only on, on our conversation that we've had just here for the last few minutes, but the conversations across this year in, in this Speaking Well podcast series and how often our colleagues have returned to this, to, to some form of slowing down or description or um, a, a pause on the judgment before we move directly to, I already have the answer, I know exactly how to act such a powerful reminder. Eric, th thank you so much for having this conversation with me. It's the conversations that really matter. That's what um, Dr. Stewart said. So thank you. Thank you, Greg. Speaking Well is a production of the Department of Communication Studies and the College of Liberal Arts at Colorado State University. Carol Bush as the producer and the podcast is recorded and engineered at the studios of KCSU at Colorado State University. I'm your host, Greg Dickinson. Until next time, be well.